all you have. You're now tuned in to the caucus rays. So just sit back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's up, Star Wars super fans? Hold on to your porch, because I'm about to take you on a wild and wacky audio adventure known as Star Wars Audio Archives. Hosted by me, Kyle. Get ready for a cosmic carnival like no other. I hope you are feeling excited, because we're about to turn up the fun dial to max. Brace yourself for an episode that will leave you grinning from ear to ear. Are you ready to unleash your inner Star Wars fan? Then let's get right to it. The image hit him head on cannonballing him out of the Nettie's thoughts and back into the present moment with all the impact of unrestrained collision. His eyes throbbed in their sockets. Pain racked his chest, ribs, and pelvis until they felt as though they were being pried open by hooks. Somewhere amid the dying branches he could hear laughter, the mindless, jabbering laughter of the Nettie surrendering itself to madness. Smoke. I smell smoke. Trace fought to clear his mind. Heat. His skin blazed. Smoke assaulted his bronchial passageways, scorched the inner lining of his sinuses. The vision of what he'd seen in the temple pit was still glued to his consciousness, and he understood now that this was where the sickness had first originated. Its source had been the library in whose labyrinthine depths Darth Scabros had discovered a Sith holocron, forgotten perhaps for more than a millennium, and unleashed something that even he was unable to control. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Trace felt the blood vessels in his head bulging with a sudden reversal of hydrostatic pressure. Wrenching agony took hold of his spine and hips. He looked down and saw that the Nettie's branches were squeezing him harder until his muscles howled for release. Behind the tree creature and below it, great ragged bursts of flame had started licking upward through the piles of fallen hollow books and sacred Sith texts, rising to engulf the library. Ought to have run away from here when you had the chance, Jedi. The Nettie's branches, blazing now, swung across the shelves, knocking hundreds of hollow books into the fire. Ought never to have sought my face. I told you I had entered my final days here. Now we'll perish together. Jays? Wait, there is nothing left for me here. Nor you. We will go now, both of us, and join your sister, Jez. No, but his limbs felt leaden, miserably weak, as if the smoke in his lungs had solidified, dropping massive hunks of ballast into his extremities. He had the awful suspicion that if he didn't start moving them soon, he'd never be able to move them again. 
Above him, the netty thing was having exactly the opposite reaction. Impending death had transformed it into a frantic, slashing version of itself. It flung its branches violently from side to side, twisting and heaving as if caught in a fiery hurricane, ripping its roots up from the floor. Somewhere in his own mind, Trace could feel the creature's last grasp on reality coming totally unmoored, even as it ripped itself from the floorboards. On either side, shelves were shuddering and collapsing with frightening speed, dumping their contents like squadrons of fiery angels falling into the abyss. The hollow books crackled, hissing showers of sparks as their circuitry burst apart in the widening blaze. How long did he have until the fire brought the roof itself down on top of them? Five minutes? Less? Help me, please, help me, help me, help me. He recoiled as if slapped. It was Zoe's voice, screaming through his mind. The thought went rocketing through him, snapping him back to a state of total awareness. Trace breathed, clear-headed, again, and grateful for it. The reprieve wouldn't last forever, wouldn't even last very long, he knew, but it might be enough to do what needed to be done. Closing his eyes, he let his body fall motionless in the grip of the netty's branches, surrendering all resistance. He took one last deep breath and held it. That single lungful of air would have to last him, or else his last hope of helping Zoe wouldn't amount to more than suicide. He created a small bubble, not much bigger than his own body, and sealed it shut, evacuating the air from inside it as he did so. The flames on his clothes, oxygen-starved, guttered, and died. Step one, done. Now, get busy. Jolting himself free from the Nettie's branches, he lurched forward inside the bubble as hard as he could, his momentum knocking it loose and letting it fall down into the landscape of the library's floor. The bubble spun and slammed into the heaps of burning hollow books, pitching him sideways inside it as it continued to spin. The library reeled around him. Then, next to the netty's trunk, he saw his lightsaber. It lay among the creature's winding snake-like roots, in front of a large ragged knot hole that had already started charring black. Steadying himself inside the bubble, Trace placed both hands along the inner curvature of its surface, spread out his fingers, and waited. A burning branch, as big as his body, swung down from high above, crashing off the top of the bubble. The netty's twig fingers clutched rigidly as they twisted and burned in front of him. Trace almost breathed in and caught himself. His body ached for oxygen for even an ounce of fresh air, but he knew that if he dissolved the barrier now and tried to inhale, the surrounding heat would flash-fry him in seconds, starting with the lining of his lungs. He looked at the lightsaber, laboring to evacuate every other thought from his mind. At the Jedi Temple, they had taught that it was never a matter of manipulating the object, but of eliminating the space that separated you from it. Yet at this moment, the object in question had never felt so far away. To me, to me, the lightsaber remained where it was. Closing his eyes, he felt the bubble shift forward like a reluctant animal roused from hibernation. 
and begin rolling over the mountains of burning books toward the netty scorched trunk. When he opened his eyes, the lightsaber lay right in front of him, poised near the ragged knothole less than a meter away. Trace centered himself, drawing up his composure. The timing of what happened next was critical. Deactivating the bubble, he opened his hand, and the lightsaber flew into it. Its handle was almost too hot to hold, but the solidity of it had never felt better in his life. It didn't take long to find what he was looking for. His eyes followed the thing's trunk back down to where it met the floor. It had yanked its roots almost entirely out of the structure's foundation, and its balance now hung on by the slenderest of threads. Trace waited until the creature was about to fling itself forward again. Then he swung the lightsaber's blade in a single crosswise motion, slashing the remaining roots to the quick. The netty thing pitched forward, no longer even remotely anchored to the library's floor. It swung loose and kept falling, a captive of its momentum. It hit the floor hard enough to thrum the entire structure on its foundation, throwing up whole blinding swarms of sparks and ash in its wake. Trace staggered forward, waving away the smoke in front of his eyes. From here, he saw a gaping hole that the tree had torn through the library's outer wall, and through it, the frozen surface of Odacer Faustin's snow-covered landscape. He could already hear the hiss of steam as the flaming architecture met the sub-zero air outside. Help me! Trace felt his sister's scream go burning throughout his entire body. This wasn't just an impression, some random emotional flash. He actually felt her pain as it wrenched through his right arm, throbbing into his shoulder and chest, blasting up to the roots of his teeth. Tears boiled up in his eyes, and the wind whipped them away. His legs went numb, and he stumbled, almost falling over in the snow. He shook it off. He couldn't explain what he just experienced. It was as if everything he knew about his sister and the Force itself had suddenly been inverted, corrupted on some fundamental level. All that remained now was a sense of evil so intimate, so profoundly personal, that it made him want to crawl out of his own skin and leave it lying here like a heap of soiled clothes. She was close. So close. He took a step back toward the burning hall of the library. Snow was blowing in furiously now, swirling with smoke and ash as he staggered through the ruined stones. If he had to go back into the fire for her, then so be it. If he had to give his life, a blood-stained arm burst up from the rubble underneath him and seized him around the ankle, pulling him down. Then a second and a third. One of them hooked around his right wrist, the others around his waist. Two others punched upward, clamped down over either leg. Claw-like fingers plunged into one corner of his mouth and drew it back into a hideous, involuntary half-grin. The debris around him was roiling with activity now, of half-buried shapes clawing their way upward from below. They were covered in vines. Gravity took him, and he fell. Although he'd never considered himself a lucky man under the best of circumstances, Fergus Frode had had the presence of mind over the past several hours to realize that he was very fortunate indeed. 
The cargo hold of Dranak's cruiser, where he was hiding, had obviously been built to smuggle contraband. All around him in the half-light, empty swing bins and hidden storage spaces stood open, exhaling the damp and fragrant residue of illegally transported spices that had been piled up here over the years. Frode squirmed a little, lifting his head, stretching his legs and back, allowing himself to straighten up just enough to restore circulation to his extremities. There was tingling through his feet and toes, pins and needles as the leaden heaviness of numb muscle tissue began, reluctantly, to reawaken. He was going to need the full use of his feet, he knew, in case he had to run again. He hoped it wouldn't come to that. He'd run enough tonight already. Although it certainly did beat the alternative. It had started hours ago. How many? He wasn't even sure now. He'd just finished removing the flight computer from Tanakh's ship and had hauled it back into the shop to run some basic diagnostics on it. All that time, his unconscious mind had been wrangling with the issue of how he was going to handle the incoming heat signature from the unknown vessel heading straight for Odacer Faustin's landing hangar. To inform Darth Scabros or not inform him? That had been the question he'd been pondering when a bloody palm had slapped and squeaked off the control booth's glass. Jarred out of his thoughts, Frode had sat up and spun around just in time to see something it might once have been human in the process of ripping the hatch off the booth. That face was like something out of a nightmare. A gray and grinning mask. Whole chunks of viscera had begun to pucker and peel around its lips. Staring at it, Frode's brain had flashed back to a corpse that he and another mechanic had once stumbled across inside the cockpit of a speeder they'd been salvaging. Except this corpse's eyes were wide open and staring at him hungrily. If he'd stopped and given it even an instant's thought, Frode would already have been dead. Luckily for him, rumination was not his natural tendency. His first reaction was to run. He got one leg free and kicked out the front plate above the booth's instrument panel. The plexi popped loose, and he'd gone slithering out, hitting the hangar bay and running faster than he'd ever run in his life. The hangar was largely empty and presented extremely limited possibilities for protection. Acting on his gut, he'd reared around toward the nearest vessel, the cruiser that those two doomed bounty hunters, Dranok and Skarl, had arrived in, and went bolting up the still-extended landing ramp, reeling around to slam the ship's hatch shut behind him. Frode had piloted his share of ships before becoming a mechanic, and this one looked like as good an escape vehicle as any. Whatever the thing was that had tried to attack him, he had no intention of sticking around to fight it. No job was worth that. He'd started to power up the ship, ready to activate the flight computer, and realized his error. The hole in the instrumentation panel gaped at him like a slack, empty mouth. Now, he thought, remembering the components that he'd yanked out with such enthusiasm just an hour or so before. The flight computer was still sitting on the counter in his booth, and he couldn't fly without it any more than he could. The thing landed on the cockpit in front of him, grinning hideously, and began pounding and scratching at the trans-parasteel. 
Frode screamed. He couldn't help it. He didn't think he'd ever screamed that loud in his life. Certainly not in his adult life. But terror was booming through him now in big, wide, frantic waves. He felt dizzy with it. And then he saw something worse. Outside, the hangar bay was filling with the living dead. Sith students, Frode realized only now how much he truly hated them, were shambling in the direction of the ship from all sides, jerking and scrambling and lurching forward, their mouths scooped open in big shovel-faced grins. Behind them, a sprawling, gangling thing that looked like a living tree was dragging a long mesh of dripping black roots and branches toward him. Its eyes reflected only madness. As Frode, who'd never once set foot in the Academy's library and would never have recognized the infected remains of its arboreal curator, stood crouched in the cockpit. One of the branch arms had swung up and slapped at the transperisteel viewport. It connected hard enough that for a second, he almost thought he'd heard the port crack. Impossible. That was when he'd run back into the rear of the ship, down a landing ramp, through a hatch, until he'd landed here, in the safest place that he could find, the smuggler's bin, and curled here, and hadn't moved since. Purgus? He sat up a little, uncertain if he'd heard the voice or simply imagined it. He was not a particularly imaginative person, and the voice, a female, sounded very real. After a moment, he realized it was coming from the comlink mounted above his head. Frode reached up and keyed the mic. Pergus, who are you? He asked aloud. How do you know my name? Kendra, how come I can hear you? The Force, Pergus. You're up there, I know. Frode listened to the voice. There was something unsettling about it, as if the speaker, Kendra, whoever that was was trying very hard to sound calm and easygoing, as if nothing was wrong. Underneath it, though, he detected a strong undercurrent of, uh... What? Fear? Terror? Where are you? he muttered. Hanger, the voice said. Get out! Get me out! What about those things? Aren't they still out there? No answer. He wondered if it was because something had happened to her that he couldn't hear her talking anymore. Kendra? Just open the hatch of the ship, Purgus. Open up and let me in. I'll be quick. We'll both fly out of here together. We can't stay here. But hurry. I'm right outside. I can't, he said. I took out the ship's flight computer. It can't navigate without it. We wouldn't make it three clicks in this weather. We'll crash right back into the snow. I'll... I'll help us. We'll get away somehow. I promise. Please, Perkis. Just let me in. Please. Hurry. Frode grimaced. One of the reasons he'd ventured all this way to the far end of the galaxy was his rotten luck with women. Specifically, his inability to deny them anything. Yet here he was again. Hating himself already, he stood up inside the storage bin, lifted off the steel plate, and crawled up into the main landing ramp. In truth, he wasn't sure why he was doing it. He knew it wasn't right. There was definitely something wrong about opening the hatchway. Yet the voice, the girl's pleas, her desperation motivated him forward, 
drew him along in a way that he couldn't quite comprehend. And maybe she could help get them out of here. Maybe. The force. A faint voice of reason piped up deep inside him. From somewhere hopelessly deep within himself. She's using the force on you to manipulate your actions. And although he knew it was true, he still couldn't quite seem to resist. He reached the main hatchway, placed his hand on the lever, and turned it, pushing it forward. Look, he started. I don't think this is... And stopped. Beyond the hatch, the hangar was completely dark. Frode stood, clutching the bulkhead behind him, pupils dilating, trying to make out even the vaguest of shapes. But without success... It was as if whatever was out there had destroyed the lights and ripped out the power, burying the vast space around him in utter blackness. But he could hear them. Holding his breath, he could hear the sounds of many bodies rustling together. The faint, moist sound of their shoulders and arms and torsos packed together in the dark. They weren't breathing but they were making hollow, rasping noises that could have been some obscene attempt at speech. Then, all around him, the lightsabers started coming on. They activated individually and in clusters, red humming spikes of light, dozens of them shooting upward, filling the air with a low, oscillating hum that shook Frode's molars in the back of his mouth. His eyes began to adjust... And at length, he began to make out the blades shining off the starved, dead faces of the students that held them upright. Their blank expressions. The bleak and rapacious eyes that gaped back at him. Drool gleamed on their lips. Dried red gore encrusted their teeth and lips. No, Frode thought. Oh, no. Staring out at the things, he felt something inside him loosen, turn to liquid and swirl away, something both abstract and at the same time terribly visceral, like the blood supply to his heart. Everywhere he looked, more scarlet streaks continued to crosshatch on top of one another, springing up in all directions as if something were clawing its way out of the dark, and the dark was bleeding. And looking closer, he saw the girl... She was standing at the bottom of the gangway amid a shifting prison of red blades, surrounded by the rotting corpses of her classmates, their hands clutching her arms and legs, holding her captive. Lightsabers crisscrossed in front of her, hovered over her head, immobilizing her. One of the things had its open mouth pressed up against her bare throat. Another's teeth were bared and ready to attack a small, exposed part of her shoulder. A third and fourth stood waiting behind her, their jaws open so wide that it almost seemed like they could have devoured her entire head in one huge, all-consuming bite. I did what you wanted, Kendra shouted at them. He opened it. Now, let me go. Let me... The things fell upon her, the red blades slashing her to pieces as they ripped her apart. Even from where Frode stood, the crunching noises were thick and juicy and glottal, like the sound of someone biting into a particularly ripe apple. Several of the corpses broke free from the group 
and started thundering up the gangway toward the open hatchway. Just as Frode slammed it shut again, he decided he could fly the ship without the flight computer after all. Zoe awoke to a tight band of pain across her chest and shoulders, twisting in her joints like ground glass. When she tried to shift her position to alleviate the pain, she realized that she couldn't move at all. The pit where she lay was settled at the bottom of a deep shaft, its high onyx-colored walls shining up as far as the eye could see in some unfathomable expanse of glassy black. Her head spun. She realized that she had been tied down here, strapped to a large stone slab by wide leather bands and iron rings that crisscrossed her chest and looped over her wrists and ankles, pinning them in position. Torches burned on either side of her, rows of them in hundreds leading upward, flickering up over the walls, gleaming off tiny, ornate lines of script and filigree that moved across it like rows of programmer's code. She breathed, coughed a little, and tried to summon moisture onto the back of her tongue. The air down here tasted metallic, dusty, and very old. It was like inhaling through a hole in some archaic stone tablet. Oily tallow from the torches dripped on the floor around her, and the greasy black smoke wafting up from their flames only made her throat feel more parched. From somewhere behind her, she heard movement, the scuff and rustle of footsteps, the soft clink of objects being arranged outside her peripheral vision. Look up, Scabrous's voice croaked. Zoe turned and moved her neck, straining to tilt her head as much as the straps would allow. The Sith Lord was gazing down. The decay process had accelerated drastically since she'd last looked at him. The sickness had taken over his face completely now, remaking it into gelid, shapeless soup, from which two bloodshot eyes gleamed at her with terrible scrutiny. Gray strips of gristle quivered from the exposed bone of his skull, and when he spoke, she saw the tendons swing inside his throat. He was holding a sword. Not a lightsaber, but an actual Sith sword. Its shining blade seemed to have been forged from the same black durasteel as the walls around them, and stretched as long as Scabrous's arm. As the Sith Lord raised it up, Zoe realized that the designs from the walls of the pit had been echoed along the blade's entire length, great thorny rows of script and inscription gleaming in the torchlight. The resulting weapon seemed almost to blur and merge with its surroundings, its lethal edge shimmering and disappearing again as the Sith Lord swung it overhead. This blade, Scabra said, belonged to Darth Drear. It was forged exclusively for him to ensure his immortality. So today, in accordance with his legacy, I will use it to slice out your living heart and devour it while you watch. Zoe tried to answer with no idea of what she might say, but the knot in her throat blocked out all speech. Terror, bright and uncontrollable, had fastened itself over her conscious mind, and she could not stop staring at the sword. 
At this moment, nothing in her past, her training, or her aspirations for the future seemed as real to her as its blade. The inarguable geometric equation that connected its edge to her flesh. Hestizo, there was nothing she could do. The sword plunged down. Chapter 40. Wet work. There's one, Tolka said. Behind that wall. See him? The HK pivoted unhesitatingly, firing two quick blasts at the open-mouthed Sith thing as it stalked around the corner in front of them, arms thrown open. It went down, screaming. Your turn, the HK replied. To your left. The whippet turned and flung his spear into the space between the building and the statue rising before it. An instant later, a Sith student lunged out, the spear embedded in its chest, roaring toward them until Tulka fired an arrow into its head. Nicely done, but it's still coming. With a grunt, Tulka ambled forward and picked the Sith student up by the spear hanging from its ribs. Lifting the thing completely off its feet, he wrenched it around sideways and hammered it into the stone wall alongside them. The tip of the spear twisted loose, and he used its serrated edge to rip off the thing's head. He held the head out on the end of the spear, offering it to the droid. Keepsake? No. What happened to, no thank you, sir? The droid gazed at him. Look out behind you, sir. Tulka looked back at the side of the structure where he'd just beheaded the Sith thing. The ground began to tremble. He saw a flash of motion inside the half-open hatchway, something big, and heard a scream, a great torrent of gargling screeches. It didn't sound like the ones that he'd heard before, but the smell was hideously familiar. Watch out, he said. This is going to be bad. The first undead Tauntaun came charging out, smashing the door of the hatchway completely out of its housing with the bulk of its body. From here, Tulka could see that half its thoracic cavity was ripped away, the remains of its internal organs flapping from its ribs. A large section of its head was gone as well, but it was still screaming as it flung itself toward them. Its eyes were clouded and pinkish, like milk mixed with blood. Burn it, Tulka said. The droid's flamethrower roared across the open ground, and the bounty hunter saw the snow lizard's oily pelt come alive with flames. Howling, the thing spun around, trampling furiously, rolling in the snow, trying to extinguish the fire. And the HK fired into it, blasting its carcass to shreds. You have anything bigger than a laser? Tulka asked. Mortar rounds. Why? The whippet gave a nod back at the open paddock. The herd of infected tauntauns was already thundering out. Half a dozen or more, all producing that same indefinable shrieking noise. The front runner had a gaping hole in its flank, the ragged edges of the wound quivering as it galloped so that the hole slapped open and shut like a second stammering mouth. 
something was wrong with its upper torso. Tulka could see a heavy shape writhing around inside the snow lizard's belly. He slammed his spear into it, and the thing burst open in a thick welter of fluid. From inside, the blood-soaked form of a Sith student came spilling out into the snow. The Sith thing stood up, grinning from inside its sticky web of blood, shook its head from side to side violently, and screamed. Tulka speared the Sith student, ramming its body back into the snow lizard's carcass and pinning it against the thing's spinal column. He looked back at the droid. They're hiding inside the Tauntauns, he shouted. They... The hard metal of the HK's arm swung back and shoved him over, forcefully enough to knock him down in the snow, just as a slick bullet of bloody spit flew out of the infected Tauntaun's mouth. Another centimeter to the right, and it would have hit Tulka directly in his open eye. As it was, the gobbet of mucus stuck to the side of his head and clung there. Looking up... Tulka saw the animal's gore-soaked muzzle puckering, summoning up another mouthful. They're notorious for their aim. Thanks. I suggest another plan. They're faster than us. Tulka saw the other undead tauntauns behind the one he'd gutted, their hollowed-out chests and underbellies swelling and bulging with the Sith students hiding inside. Already he could imagine what it would be like. The snow lizards pounding up behind him at 50 kilometers per hour, only to eject their flesh-starved passengers on top of him. Any ideas? Only one. It was already taking aim. An instant later, the HK's mortar round flew directly into the center of the herd. At close range, its 20-meter blast radius was a sight to behold, even to Tulka, who had seen the end result of such weapons many times before. He shielded his eyes as chunks and fragments of cold tauntaun fat, human flesh, and bone came raining down on top of them. Is there anything else we can kill? Ourselves, if we don't move. The HK turned to regard the landscape where they stood. Something inside its processor made a low, steady whirring noise, as if it was processing the recent developments or experiencing a memory. When it spoke again, its voice was unhurried, almost introspective. Have I told you how much I hate the Sith for enslaving me here for so long? Only about twenty times. Tulka stepped around the still-twitching Tonton hindquarters, idly admiring the knob of exposed hip joint. As trophies went, it would have made a fine addition to his collection, but it was going to have to stay here. He sighed. Let's go. They turned and started walking. The whippet's fur was wet and dirty from the snow, and it clung to the side of his head in thickly plastered strands that made his flesh both clammy and numb. He was exhausted and distracted and more than ready to get out of here. Neither he nor the HK noticed the bloody, gelatinous glob of infected tauntaun sputum that the snow lizard had fired at him. But it was still there, still trickling steadily down the side of his brow, making its way toward the corner of his eye. Arriving at the Miracle, Tulka saw something that stopped him cold. There was a second ship, 
one that he didn't recognize, crashed 40 or so meters away from his own, its nose cone crumpled, half embedded in the snow. The HK beeped. Astronaut's ship. Who? Another bounty hunter. What's it doing all the way out here? Tulka asked. According to my scanners, there are no life forms on board. But... Let me guess. The whippet raised his spear. You're picking up a positive reading in my ship. How did you know? Tulka pointed at the tracks leading across the snow in front of them. From one crashed ship to the other. Come on, he muttered. Looks like we've got at least one stowaway to scrag before we get out of here for good. Scabrus swung the Sith sword downward. With the first cut, the blade slashed through the dirty outerwear and animal skins that Zoe had been wearing since her arrival here, exposing bare skin. She looked down and saw the shallow white trough that the sword had gouged through her flesh, a pale streak of pain, the cut turning red as it filled with blood. Scabrus grinned at her, staring down at the wound, actually salivating now, as he raised the sword a second time, extended high over his head, clutching its handle with both hands for maximum leverage, angling its tip directly toward her chest. His eyes rolled madly, utterly lost to the sickness that had overtaken them. Zoe went rigid, yanking at the straps, knowing even as she did it there was no way she could get loose. Not with your muscles, Hestizo. Reach out with the Force. It was the same voice that had called out to her just a moment before. She drew in a breath and fell absolutely still, closing her eyes, surrendering her mind to the moment so that time itself seemed to fall motionless, settling down around her like silt. And when she raised her arms up again in one smooth motion this time, the bindings fell loose beneath her. It was as if she'd passed through the leather straps without a whisper of resistance. Her wrists swung outward, her torso and legs suddenly, shockingly free. Snapping upright, Zoe swung her body off to one side of the slab. No! Scabrus roared from the other side, the blade still held up high in the air above him. His voice was shrill, and as he shouted, Zoe realized that she was hearing two voices, one forming the words in her ear while the other emitted the piercing, ululating scream in her mind. You shall not! You dare not! She scrambled farther back. She was upright and on her feet for the first time, and the confines of the temple where she stood were only now beginning to register to her. An oblong room centered on the sacrificial altar. The stone floor beneath her cluttered with braziers, casting shallow pools of shifting firelight. The Sith Lord charged at her, angling the sword downward, its blade wickering past her so closely that Zoe heard the steel hissing crosswise through the air, shearing molecules from their bonds. It clanged off the wall, and he spun around with sickening, eye-watering speed, slicing sideways for her. Hestizo, it's me. The voice in her head again, the one that she still couldn't identify, although its words continued to waft upward through her mind, resonating outward, ripples in a pond. Even as she lurched backward again, 
the corner of the temple pressing into her back so that there was literally nowhere left to turn, she heard it calling out. Hestizo, where are you? Her brain cried back. Who are you? A remote possibility, wild but somehow impossible to ignore, burst into her mind fully formed. Rojo, is that you? Jedi trash. Scabrus appeared in front of her, raising the sword between them, the sticky ruin of his face glinting off the engraved steel. He moved forward to administer the death blow, but in that same moment, a crash erupted behind him, clanging deafeningly across the temple, followed by the rolling tinny clatter of an upset brazier. The Sith Lord whirled, sword still raised, lips drawing backward, and glared at the man standing before him. The man wasn't even looking at Scabrus. He was looking at Hestizo. Get behind me, Trace told Zoe. Now. Not waiting another instant for her reaction, he sprang upward, arcing around and landing on the floor in front of Zoe so that he was face to face with Scabrus, locked directly into the Sith Lord's stare. His lightsaber pulsed to life, its beam humming. This is over. Scabrus's answer came in the form of a scream. The Sith sword slashed downward in his right hand while his left swung upward, gripping his own lightsaber. He flung himself forward, both blades whirring in front of him, spinning outward, flashing steel and pure blood-red energy lashing out, the long, terrible scream still stretching from his jaws. From the first thrust, there was no art to his attack, no evidence of grace or form. It was already too late for that, and both Trace and Scabras seemed to know it. They went at each other viciously, head-on, like animals with no air between them, slashing and blocking, edging around the open place in the floor. Every time their blades crashed together, Zoe felt it in the hollow of her chest and the roots of her teeth. She watched as Trace probed the Sith Lord's weak places, or where he must have hoped they'd be. But Scabra seemed to anticipate each move. The sickness had made him incredibly fast, insurmountably strong. For every attack that her brother made, one of Scabros's two blades had an effortless reaction, as if he already held the outcome of the duel in the palm of his hand. Yet for some reason, he was still allowing Rojo to force him backward across the temple, back toward the sacrificial altar. His movements almost ethereal behind the constant reckless smear of blue and red and steel blades all carving through the air. Scabrus was poised in front of the altar now, standing before the slab where he'd laid Zoe out for her sacrifice. He stepped lithely between the braziers, even the one that Rojo had knocked over when he'd landed, maneuvering without the slightest effort past the rising bank of flames where the fire had started to spread. It was climbing the black wall, orange peaks and tongues flickering upward, rising. Zoe watched her brother press forward again, keeping the duel tight and close. But the Sith Lord made no move to back away any farther now. Even as he continued to deflect Trace's blade, his lips were moving. Zoe couldn't make out what he was saying. And when Rojo brought his lightsaber up for a final attack, she saw that Scabrus wasn't just smiling. He was actually laughing. Trace swung down again. One final blow. The 
coup de grace that was intended to finish things between them permanently. Just then, Scabras glanced up and gestured, a small, insignificant flick of the fingers in the direction of Trace's lightsaber. There was a slight airborne tremor in the space above his arm, and Trace's lightsaber went out. Did you really think, Scabras's voice was saying, that after all that, I would trust the outcome to a duel? Trace didn't even bother looking at the deactivated lightsaber in his hand. He tossed it aside and pivoted backward as Scabras's blade slashed across the open space where he'd been standing a split second earlier. The red blade crashed into the floor, shaking it under Trace's feet. Everything had gone wrong. The Sith Lord had laid a trap, and he'd walked right into it. Scabras swept toward him, triumphant now. The remains of his eyes were huge and dead, bulging in their sockets. At first, he looked as though he was going to scream again. But when he spoke, his voice was oddly mellifluous, almost a purr. Tell me a story, Jedi. Tell me about the Force and how it binds everything together. Tell me how it protects the good and sacred in life. The Sith Lord's lips drew back to show all his teeth. Tell me all your lies. Trace raised up one hand. He'd intended to levitate the stone altar behind Scabros into the air. He could probably flip it around and drop it on top of Scabros fast enough that he wouldn't have time to react. But Scabros sprang forward with a lightsaber, and when Trace moved to dodge it, he thrust himself directly onto the waiting edge of the Sith sword. Trace looked down and saw the blade plunge through him. He felt a peculiar weightlessness pass over him, as if the gravity in the room had been suspended, as if, by lifting his feet off the floor, he might dematerialize completely. When he looked down again, all he could see was blood. Oh boy, this part had me bouncing off the walls with excitement. It was filled with more twists and turns than a wild wombat caught in a windstorm. And you know what? I absolutely adored the level of exhilaration. It's like an adrenaline rush that only Star Wars can deliver, and I am totally hooked on it. But hold on tight, because there's still more to come. We got the quote of this part lined up. And this time, it comes straight from the wise and mighty Jedi Master, Depa Balaba. She said, Success is not measured by the toughness of the problem you face, but by your ability to turn it into stardust and create a new constellation of triumph. Life is a grand voyage filled with challenges and obstacles at every turn. We all encounter tough problems, whether in our personal lives or our professional endeavors. And when faced with such trials, it is easy to feel like you are stuck. However, true success is not merely about encountering tough problems. It's about our capacity to rise above them, to forge new paths forward. If we're still wrestling with the same problem this year that we had last year, then we haven't truly progressed. Success is about growth. It's about confronting our challenges head on and unearthing solutions to conquer them. It's about learning from our mistakes and transforming that knowledge into personal and professional growth, resilience, and strength. So I implore you to march onward with unyielding determination. Strive for success, but remember, it's not about the toughness of the problem you face. It's about your unwavering ability to transcend it. Remember that you possess the cosmic power to conquer any obstacle that comes your way. 
And I think that concludes this episode. Join us next time for part 13 of this breathtaking story. May the force guide you until we meet again. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pickfield Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and is distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars Red Harvest was read to you by Jeremy Owens. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. Thank you.